I think I had this breakthrough moment where uh, I was watching a documentary about the Beatles, and they were they were showing how the they the guys went to India and came back, and they were all meditating, and that was part of their creative process. And it's like, wait a second, yeah, that's a long time ago. That is, you know, that's not. I don't know if we can say fad anymore around meditation. Hey everyone, it's Megan, and you're listening to a Better Product Original series. Our last episode of Health Tech takes us to a product we bet you've heard of before, Headspace. Headspace is an internationally popular app that got on the scene by helping people practice mindful living. Frank Bach, lead product designer at Headspace, joined the company when it was mostly known for meditation. Now, Headspace is much more. It's a media empire with a show on Netflix and an advocate for mental health in the workplace. They're even partnering with a teletherapy service to connect people with professional mental health care. I feel like something our founders have kind of ingrained in us is meeting people where they're at. And sometimes that's running. Sometimes that's using celebrities to help endorse the product. If you can speak to people and reach them, everyone's at a different step in that wellness journey, if they even realize it or not. As a new dad, Frank opens up about how his own mindfulness journey and relationship with healthcare informs the design decisions he makes for Headspace. I grew up in Canada where, you know, where healthcare is is a, a service the government provides and seeing how in the mostly in the US that people really rely on their employers to to give them that service or access to those services. Uh, so I guess in a in a way it's it is it is sort of a the market servicing a need that has become obvious, but there's definitely a, a new conversation around the you know stigma of mental health and these kinds of things. And I, I feel like we've, we we kind of have that moment like every two or three years where it just feels like we're unlocking this new level around the comfort of that conversation. Because I remember joining Headspace five and a half years ago, and we were talking about you know, meditation is having a cultural moment, and it's you know people are talking about it, people are doing it, and I just feel like it's it's just continuing to grow. Like that market is is growing bigger and bigger and more and more people are getting into it. Frank brings not only his design perspective to Headspace, his five-year experience at the company offers an inside look at how a brand took mental health mainstream. Let's jump in. Today, I am joined by the lead product designer, Frank Bach, from an app I think most people know, and hopefully a lot of listeners are using from Headspace. So thank you so much for joining us today, Frank. I'm going to bring a little bit of my maybe borderline creepy fanboy conversation that we had before we started recording onto the air to sort of just let people know Frank is as is well known in the design community, been involved in a lot of stuff. You made your way from Ontario to Savannah College of Art and Design, and now you're in LA working with Headspace. And I was looking at your Twitter bio, and it was like clicking at thing after thing after thing. You're designing everything. You've got a PDF that you just wrote. I mean, you're doing a lot of stuff. So I don't know where to start in the journey, but in general, I think I really just want to understand what took you to Headspace, what, five years ago? And and what's keeping you there today? It's funny you say that. I mean, I, I have these conversations a lot, especially with my my wife of like, when will you create enough? You know, when is when is enough? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, I, I wake up with that itch every single day. And I, as much as I love my day job at Headspace, fantastic place to work. It gives me a lot of like purpose and, and joy. I also know that I'm quite entrepreneurial and I love side projects and 
doing these smaller things to kind of, you know, use my skill set or other things that I don't get to do in my day-to-day job. But the journey to Headspace starts uh, probably about, say, about eight years ago. I'm running a, a studio in Ontario, in Canada, and I'm, you know, I'm, I founded it. I'm the boss. I make all the decisions. I meet with all the clients, and I'm finding that I'm doing a lot less of the stuff that I have a passion for, actual design work. Every day is is done with like pitches and presentations and and contracts and things, and it's just like sucking the life out of me. I'm super stressed. I'm dealing with a couple health issues that thankfully have have subsided, and I'm not dealing with them anymore. But at that time, just a lot of things come to a head, and my wife says you should try meditation. Heard this works really well for people dealing with you know the kind of thing you're going through right now, and. Of course, you you kick back, you push back. Don't you know that sounds silly? I don't want to do that. I think I need to try something something else, or just kind of push it down, ignore it, and and you know just keep focusing on work or something, and not deal with that issue. And we discover Headspace. It's just launched maybe a year before that, and enjoy it. You know, give it a give it a try. So I'm basically in this mental place where I'm considering a career change to be more focused as a, as a designer and less as like a, an account exec essentially is what I was doing. Get back to my roots and what I really, really love doing. And I'm finally considering after seven years to basically retire the, the agency I was running and, you know, step away from being the, the decision maker, the boss and, actually join a company in a much uh, more junior role. And that was a move from basically the world of brand marketing into digital products. And I just didn't really have that much experience in the product space. And I knew I needed to ramp up really quickly. But using the Headspace app, helping me focus, helping me get a little bit of clarity on where I want to go over the next few years, you know, just giving you like using meditation as a, almost like a, a tool to find my, my compass per se. Uh, that was really awesome. That was really helpful. And it helped me get through that big life moment. And, you know, a couple of years go by, I work at a different company working on uh, the Red Bull TV platform, launched that, got a bunch of experience that I really needed. And what do you know, I'm in Los Angeles, and so is Headspace and they're hiring. And uh, I put some pieces together, have some conversations. And uh, there you have it. I'm, I've joined Headspace five and a half years ago, and I'm still there. And I feel like where you started saying your entrepreneurial like side projects, that's always, I always hear like, well, this guy will be gone in a year from, from someone like that, but you haven't. So how do you stay there and work through that? Is it, how do you keep the work interesting with that sort of mindset? You wake up in the morning, want to do and create, how do you do that? What keeps me in the role is, uh, I don't think we've yet cracked it. You know, I think we have an awesome product that, that helps a lot of people, but I think we can still do more. There's still, I think there's still a lot to be uncovered. I think there's a lot more uh, guidance we can be giving our members and people who use the app. And, you know, the people are fantastic. It's an awesome place to work. It's just having that environment that, that values wellness. And since the pandemic, we've been doing uh, four-day work weeks every second week. And then alternate weeks are no meeting days, basically four-day work weeks. And just having that set up 
gives me the space to dabble in the side projects and have have fun and keep the side projects just like very pure and not super focused on monetization and making sure that I'm you know I'm also scratching that creative itch and desire because I just I, I have you know we all we, some people just are are idea generators and uh, ideas are great but execution is is the hardest and having a good work-life balance and a, a great employer that values that gives me that little bit of extra space to do the other things I want to do in life, you know, which are not only work. They also include hobbies like skateboarding and listening to music and being a dad and all that kind of stuff. And so I tend to look at my life as a bunch of, you know, headspace and the, that the job is the core of it. And then there are a bunch of pieces kind of surrounding it. You know, I've got my little, this is my little universe and I do headspace in the day and I do, you know, the side project stuff when I have free time or on Fridays and it's working for me. It keeps me fresh. You mentioned before, so there's a lot of questions I would ask based on that, but, but I, I want to go back to that at the beginning of what you were saying, you feel like at headspace, you haven't cracked it well, in your mind, not necessarily what headspace is it is, but at least what it means to you. What does that mean? What do you think you haven't cracked? I think there's an aspect of like support and guidance that would be very helpful in the product. I think people would benefit hugely from that. Meditation is a, is such a difficult habit to start and sustain that I think there's, there's something to be uncovered there that would be hugely beneficial. In the past, we kind of know the demographics that we're, that we hit, that, that we resonate well with. And I just think we could go bigger. I think there's a lot more people we're not reaching. Uh, a lot of people who could benefit from meditation practice. So I'm probably an example of the it that you haven't cracked. So I'm just going to like come clean right here. I was a Headspace subscriber. So I took meditation in college and I got an A. And before anybody like makes fun of it, I had to create a guided meditation, but you know, it was good. So that was my first exposure. I mean, it was like 20 years ago. But then I kind of similar to you, I think I got re-exposed to it when I was just dealing with the stress, anxiety of starting a business, you know, becoming a dad, all that stuff. And so I got back into it, but I did find it. So I exercise, I find like habits of exercising for me, at least like I get the endorphin rush or whatever, like becomes easier to get hooked on it. if I can find the time in my day, but man, I really do struggle with meditation. I'm a believer. I believe it, but my mind spins so fast and I'm always wanting to do stuff. It is that hard thing to sort of continue to do. And uh, so I'm not actively using Headspace and I most certainly will out of some form of reciprocity after this interview. I'm sure I'm going to go start it again, but I'll, I'll still have the same challenge. But I'm, I'm guessing that's what you see with a lot of people as well. What you're saying resonates with me too. I see it in myself, you know, and I work there. It's definitely a thing that's hard to hard to maintain, hard to keep up. Uh, so I think until we get there, that's the that's the it that I want to crack. And maybe it's it's uh, self serving a bit, but I just think there's something there's something else that could be done to help people keep that keep that habit going. One of the things that I've I've seen you do so I so I got into running during the pandemic, and so then I started getting I started using the Nike Run Club app for some of the guided runs, and at some point. They may have always been there. I didn't notice them. But at some point in there, there were these mindful runs that were cross, you know, whatever, cross collabs with with Headspace, whatever it is. So that seems to be interesting to see how Headspace is 
moving beyond Headspace, download that app and actually getting into other almost like complementary areas. So there's that. And then, you know, there's this this ginger thing that you all are doing with mental health. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you're thinking about broadening Headspace outside of just itself as a product. I feel like something our founders have kind of ingrained in us is meeting people where they're at. And sometimes that's running. Sometimes that's using celebrities to help endorse the product. If you can speak to people and reach them, everyone's at a different step in that wellness journey, if they even realize it or not. And the Nike stuff you're talking about, that was actually a bit of like an experiment to see if it would be something that would be valuable for us to build in our product. So we were able to leverage that partnership with Nike to kind of help build that out. And then we, we saw some success in it. So we thought, yeah, that's great. Validate that and then give us the the confidence to go and build that out in our own product. But yeah, it's still they're still in the Nike app. And uh, another example of that has been the the Netflix series that came out a little while ago. That's, you know, another way of reaching people who may not ever download the app or may have not considered downloading the app, maybe a more passive kind of experience. And if that leads them to downloading our app or ingraining us in their lives in, in some way, then I think that's a huge win. And uh, then specifically on the ginger topic, that's like the, the new the new big news for us, which is we've merged with uh, Ginger, who are a teletherapy coaching platform, mostly focused on B2B. And that's been a, an area where we've seen Headspace business grow quite a bit through the pandemic. It's been the, the Headspace for Work offering where employers will pay for the service for their, their staff, for their team. And I think adding on a teletherapy coaching service with Headspace, even complementary and not necessarily in the app, uh, I think makes the offering so enticing for for you know, for HR departments, for businesses to pick that up for their employees. It's been interesting to see what 2020 did to to the sort of awareness of mental health and the tie-in with the workplace. It's hard, always hard to know alternative timeline. There is no COVID. Do you still do this with Ginger? It's hard to say, but I, I can at least say, even if it were happening before, the demand is even higher now because there's so many people talking about burnout, mental health at work. And that's where a lot of this is starting. And it's been really interesting. It's unique because I, I grew up in Canada where, you know, where healthcare is is a, a service the government provides and seeing how in the mostly in the US that people really rely on their employers to, to give them that service or access to those services. Uh, so I guess in a, in a way, it's, it, is, it is sort of a, the market <laughs> servicing a need that has become obvious, but there's definitely a, a new conversation around the you know, stigma of mental health and these kinds of things. And I, I feel like we've, we kind of have that moment like every two or three years where it just feels like we're unlocking this new level around the comfort of that conversation. Because I remember joining Headspace five and a half years ago, and we were talking about you know, meditation is having a cultural moment, and it's you know people are talking about it, people are doing it, and I just feel like it's it's just continuing to grow. Like that market is is growing bigger and bigger, and more and more people are getting into it. And it's also probably challenging in any health. It's so sub subject to fads and trends. You think about diets, a paleo diet, and then even like these health trends of 
of this is hot for a while. And then new science comes out. It's like, oh, cholesterol is good for you. Sugars are bad. Oh, sugars. Are so there's so many areas that get subjected to this fad cycle. Meditation, it seems like could have been that way. But it, from my observation on Headspace, you seem to have become immune to that. Even if it's there is some fad cycle, you all have stayed above that to some degree, it feels like. Does that resonate with you? Or do you, do you think about that in, in your work? I used to think about it a lot more. Uh, I think just just in the the time that I've I've seen that grow, especially in the West, in in the U.S. and North America, I I, I don't really think about it too much. I think I had this breakthrough moment where uh, I was watching a documentary about the Beatles, and they were they were showing how the they the guys went to India and came back, and they were all meditating, and that was part of their creative process. And it's like, wait a second. Yeah, that's a long time ago. That is, you know, that's not, I don't know if we can say fad anymore around meditation. And then if you go even further back, I mean, there's, I was reading an article on psychology today around like earliest traces of meditation being found in like a cave 1500 BCE, you know, so I think this is like something as old as time and our like packaging and marketing of it as a, an app, as a service is, is kind of a new angle or has been a new angle. But yeah, I don't think the fad's going away anytime soon. I would agree. There's definitely some permanence to it, but you all have you know, done something with the design that sort of stays above it. Now, and I want to learn a little bit more about what your your oversight is. Product design is very broad with something like Headspace and broad. So the first thing that always caught me with Headspace was the illustrations. So I don't know if you do the illustrations, if you do phenomenal work, if if not, how do they, that sort of level of detail fits into the broader product design strategically? Yeah, I mean, we have the best brand team in the world. They're they're incredible. Some people would think it's it's a team of 100 people, but it's much smaller. It's maybe about 12 or 15. And how we work with them, I mean, first off, there's, there's kind of like a company-wide acceptance that brand is very important, is just as important as product. You know, I think if you look at some some apps they are focused on building functions and features and the brand is an afterthought you know they maybe have a logo or something and that's cool too but i think doing something as as complex as we're doing the brand has been a huge key in in getting it to people and like repositioning and reframing what mindfulness is in a in a more modern way uh, but working with with illustrators and designers on that team we usually have them brought into our, our squads or our pods uh, or our feature teams we're working on. Our, our product designers will mostly focus on the user experience, you know, the prototyping, user testing, and validating that stuff with our product managers. Uh, but we'll bring in the brand team to identify where are some of these moments where we want to infuse a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of like a delightful or brand moment. And, you know, sometimes that's on a pop-up modal, sometimes that's on a, an empty state or an offline state or something like that. Or maybe there's a, a loading period that we need to get from one screen to another. So we'll work with them to, uh, to identify, like, what is the best way to, to work with this. So it's a little bit of a, it's like a 50-50 kind of relationship with them. I want to stay on that really quickly because you just talked about, I think what some people say, like these delighters, right, that you add in design. Those are really nice to have for a lot of product teams, right? So I'm guessing, I'm guessing in there, you're not having to go up there and make a case for, hey, we need 
to add something here to this empty state or, hey, when you load up this meditation, we want to do this. And here's why. Here's ROI. I'm guessing you don't have to do that because there's some assumption ingrained uh, that brand is important there. So if I had that right, then my question is, how do you think that came to be? So how, how do you sort of stay above having to defend those sorts of things? I think it came to be in that the original people who designed the, the first Headspace app and brand were, in fact, graphic designers who did not have much product background. They just kind of designed it with gut instinct early, early days of, of the app store. And the company just came to, to see that brand has been a huge, huge key in the company's success. It is the thing that people will talk to you about as a, as a person who works at Headspace. You know, even before we started the podcast, I think we were chatting about the, you know, the, the, the visual aspects of, of the product. And so there's just that shared understanding that that's really important and that that's us. That's a key principle in, in how we create things. And it's built into the process as in when we're working on a feature or an experiment or something, we'll map out like what is that like ideal experience like and then how do we pair it back, not even just to an MVP, but to like a, a beta and maybe an alpha, you know, as quick as we can get to learning something. And so uh, usually by the time we get to that MVP stage, uh, that is where you're, you'll be able to infuse some of that joy, some of that delight stuff. and like you said, the nice to haves. But I think as a as a lead designer for me, I try to stay on top of this. And I think if I don't if I'm not doing it, it's probably not gonna happen. But usually when we're at the stage of building out an alpha or a beta of something, that's when I'll start rallying a few folks on the brand team to start like ideating and creating the things we'll need for the MVP. And our engineers are into it they enjoy it you know they all came to headspace because they they like the brand they like the visual aspect and people get excited about it and thankfully nowadays you know a uh, uh, dropping a an image into a build or using something like lottie for animations is not that difficult you know it's fairly easy on the engineering from the engineering point of view it's more that upfront work that the brand team has to has to do uh, which with with good planning and some you know some oversight, then you, you you can get to it. But if you save it for the last minute, it probably won't make the cut. How do you in those situations measure success? I feel like it's I mean, design can be subjective, like art to some degree. But there's a lot of measurable sides. So growth design is pretty easy to measure. You always have these like conversion metrics that align to. But when you're talking about these other elements of really understanding. Maybe it's easy to measure success, like, oh, we're going to look for this, this metric, but then it might be what's contributing to it. Where are we falling short? Is, do you ever have a moment where you say something like these illustrations aren't conveying the vision that's lining up with what this is? I, I don't know. Like, do you, how do you sort of, sort of couple all those things together? There was something we did a long time ago was uh, in user testing, we were measuring uh, whether or not somebody smiled when they saw an animation or an illustration. I know it's not super scientific, but it gave us something. So you're doing this like in-person testing then? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that you guys are not looking at our faces a minute. Just wanted to make no, sure no, 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 right. none of that, none of that. <laughs> just in person or over like Zoom, over like a paid user test where somebody is, you know, we're there and we're looking at each other. That was one way that we did that. 
something that I'm I'm not super knowledgeable about yet, but I'm working on figuring out is uh, there's this Google framework called the Heart Framework, and it's uh, basically measuring happiness, engagement, adoption, uh, retention, and then task success. And there's a there's a you know, literally in the next tab on my browser is this interactiondesign.org article around this this heart framework. So I think there's something there, especially in the measuring happiness segment. But yeah, that's something I'm I'm looking to dig into because I think that's that's really powerful. Like you say, if we can if we can measure design in that sense and, and use actual metrics to kind of speak the language of business. Do you ever worry about what stuff like that does to design? Do you have any concerns there? Just because not everything that is measured matters or, or like sometimes you can do something just for fun. Uh, I like to give myself that permission. It's not always an easy sell, but like sometimes it's just cool. Probably in side projects too. It's like, it's okay if you just create for the sake of creating. But it seems like Headspace kind of gives that platform where more often than not, it could actually work out. That is the beauty of the side projects. And I always say they're, you know, purely for fun, experimental, for sure, look at the you know, dashboards and analytics and stuff, but I'm not, I'm not pushing myself to like meet a certain OKR or uh, push a certain metric too hard to the point where I think it's going to take away from the experience. Yeah, well, I, I have a totally something just struck me. So I'm a Peloton user, and I'm thinking about how we have there's Peloton meditations, and I've been told to do them because it like fits into Peloton. But headspace is like the de facto meditation. I'm not trying to create a battle here, but I am curious, like in the broader sense, like in the in the past five years, you've been with headspace, more things have emerged. Calm also is out there as well. And then there's a bunch of other smaller scale things. How do you sort of conceive of that on the product team when there's other approaches there? Does it ever change the way you approach the market or you approach the design of things? Are you looking sideways at these things and saying, hey, they're starting to do it in this way. It might have an effect on what people expect here. Or I just love to understand from that lens as more things enter the space, how that might affect the way you think about the, the product design side. Yeah, I think the market has changed so much from the early days. Like when I started, I'm pretty sure we were the only app in the app store to to meditate with. So that gave us a huge advantage in terms of, you know, really it was it was the go-to. Uh, nowadays, for sure, yeah, you got the Pelotons, you got companies like Casper who are in the sleep space, who are also getting into the, you know, the wellness and meditation space. Mindful eating is a thing that people you know, know and talk about. So it's it's kind of happening everywhere. I think just wellness in general is, is a massive, massive industry. I like to look at competitors like in in the category that we're in and then also like adjacent. And you could say in the past that something like Peloton was adjacent, but now they're definitely like in the space. They're definitely a, a direct competitor in that way. Yeah, I think it's all interesting. I think we can learn a lot from what our competitors do and, you know, wonder when they do it and, and why they're doing that. And there's a whole like strategy aspect to, you know, what we, what we do next and what we're doing. The one thing that kills me every time is when, when you're working on something and maybe it's a project that's been in progress for, three, six months or whatever. And then you see your competitor do like almost the same thing. And you're like, oh, now we're going to launch this and it's going to look like we, we, we were copying it, but we truly came up with this uh, all on our very own. But I think that's like very, very typical in the product world. 
Yeah, totally. And especially you, you're active on social. You've got, you will have some backlash. So you, you might have to worry about that. And we should all be so lucky to to be so well known that somebody might think we're copying, but I, it's a very real concern. So you've been designing for a while in the design community. I, I, I know that you're well known, even if you may not want to admit it, but I'm, I'm curious, you make things look easy on the outside because we see the product of your work. What, what, what's hard? What do you find challenging to do still today? You can be your own you know, harshest critic, try to be a perfectionist. I think that I formerly found that to be the hardest. You know, you, you maybe start a project and never think that it's good enough. And I think I maybe it's because I just became a dad and time has become uh, a lot less available. And I think I just got over it. You know, I, I just just launch it and see what happens. You know, don't try to perfect it. Don't try to try to like time box yourself and give yourself a bit of time, like enough time to get it done well enough. And then if it works, it works and you can you can adjust it moving forward. I put out an ebook the other day, uh, as you mentioned, and that was something that had been sitting in my notes on my phone for like three years. And I just kind of would always look back at it thinking, oh, you know what, maybe over like the holiday break, I'll finally get to it. You know, I'll finally, maybe I'll self-publish it or it needs a lot more substance to it. And I just thought, you know what, screw it. I'll just do a little, little coffee table book, sell it for $2, make a whip together a, a cover for it in a few minutes and call it a day. And I'm glad that I did it because it, you know, maybe would have never, would have never made it into people's hands. And now I've thankfully seen that, you know, people, people seem to dig it. And if, if it continues on a kind of successful path, then maybe we look at doing a true publishing of it, like a physical copy. Uh, but if not, it's all good. I, I burned up the, that creative energy that I had and kind of had that idea. And now I'll, uh, I'll sleep better at night knowing that, you know, I, I don't have this, this, thing from three years ago sitting in my notes on my phone that I, I, I don't know what to do with. I completely understand. And it's inspiring. Yeah, I've got some notes too. Now I'm looking at that. I'm like, well, I'm not a great graphic designer, so I'm going to have to get somebody on my team to help with a cover. To add to that, I do think uh, sometimes for me, focus can be difficult because I just, I have a lot of, I enjoy a lot of, I have a lot of hobbies. I enjoy a lot of, of different ways of designing, you know, designing for like, for, for like products, designing brands, designing um, for, you know, graphic design and, and kind of communication design. And so knowing that I have the skill set to kind of do all of those things, I have to sometimes say like, you know what, no, let's, let's, let's focus on this for the next three months, you know, like just say no to those other projects and push that aside, deprioritize it and just stay focused on this one thing you really want to like get better at or this one project you really want to launch. This show is not about parenting, but you did mention becoming a dad and I'm a dad and I actually feel like, so my kids are eight and 11. I do feel like, and I'm a designer by trade. I don't design anymore. I actually barely use Figma, which is like really depressing. So I started my career on like macro media fireworks before it was even like a merger acquired by Adobe. So I'm that old, but anyway, still a designer. And so I resonate with some of the stuff you're saying. And I have felt, even when I reflect like, people say, how do you get okay with some of these things? It's like, I don't know. It's like, it does feel like being a dad. So part of it is like, 
getting okay with imperfection. Some of it was just like, I don't have time to, to sit there and stew as much. So I, I'm curious for you as, as you become a dad, you know, how do you reflect on that in its impact on your career, whether tangible in terms of hours of focus or just maybe philosophical shifts? I, I feel similar to you and like this, this quote of like done is better than perfect comes to mind and uh, just getting really comfortable with the iteration process. Like everything is, you know, everything is, a, is an MVP, is an experiment. And if successful, then you kind of justify putting more time into it, you know? So figure out what's the, the leanest, quickest way you can learn something and go from there. And with that said, I got a ton of failed experiments. Like way, you know, that there's a graveyard of, of ideas that, you know, I'm not showing off today. You're not going to find that in my uh, LinkedIn bio. But maybe we should. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should be be seeing that. All types of dead businesses and 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 concepts and, and ideas that never never made it to life. I am sensing another coffee table book, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> just just gonna throw that idea out there at some yeah. point. So you become big enough that it might be helpful to the community to see that hey, even I have mistakes. Here's the big Frank's big book of big of small mistakes. That's the title, Small Mistakes. You had asked about, um, oh, the being a dad thing. That's a, the being a dad thing, I think that that's, you know, you, when you become a parent, you're not just living for yourself, as you know, you're living for your family and for your kid or your kids. And I also want, I want to be an example for my daughter to see that, like, you can try stuff in life and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to, be the best or be perfect at it and you can do stuff just for fun and there is a joy in that and you you know you may not feel the, the progression right now but you are definitely like improving or you know becoming more creative and whatever whatever that that might be so i guess in, in a sense I, I do want to be a bit of an example for her where she, she feels that freedom to just explore and have fun and just just enjoy all that life kind of has to offer there's almost like uh before you have kids, you can almost like be an unhealthy version of yourself. Like even if you know you're obsessing or whatever, it's like, oh, it's okay. But then then a kid comes along, you're like, oh, there's there's always someone watching me. So your relationship with your work or the way you may even talk to yourself changes. I, I I've definitely experienced that as well. And for whatever it's worth, you're a skateboarder. One of the greatest joys I've had is watching my daughter learn to skateboard. But um I never did myself. So a lot of it was just marveling at it. So she took skateboarding lessons, which is really cool. But uh, I think there's some aspect of like watching a learning process take place over and over helps put a lot of things in perspective. Skateboarding is also is an iterative process. You know, it's, it's you, you, you try and try and try until you until you do. And then just because you landed that trick once doesn't mean you're going to land it every time after. And you see, yeah, I was watching my daughter and seeing her like, try to just like just do like uh just like turn on a ramp 50 times i mean we stayed after practice for like three hours until she finally got it it was just amazing but yeah anyway now we're just talking about being dads but getting back to the world of product i think there is some sort of like relationship change as you think about your product work or like how you conceive of your work or if you consider your product a baby that you're you're helping guide i mean there's 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 something there so what are you let me end this by asking what are you most excited for in in twenty twenty two with Headspace? I'm excited to see how this teletherapy and coaching thing shapes up. 
you know, just to just to see what comes to life. It's been a big moment for the company with not just with the offering that we now have, but also internally how that's going to uh, going to change and and have to adapt the culture and and the team in that way. Ginger is a 500 person company, so that's you know that's adding a lot to the mix, and uh, just putting the pedal to the metal on this remote first work environment. That's been a obviously a big shift and a decision the company's made that we are a remote company with some offices that people can optionally use. Uh, but just being all in on that and getting you know really incredible with the tools that we're using and how we collaborate and uh, how we you know how we bond and how the team kind of comes together in that way i think that's going to be really fun thanks for joining us and if you haven't yet be sure to join the better product community we've got all sorts of content and resources for you and if you want more audio don't forget The Business of Product is our latest show to join the Better Product Network, and you can find that and more at betterproduct.community.